Hello and welcome to the MedReach podcast. This is episode 24 and today we're talking about paediatric resuscitation and we have a special guest, Christina Harry, who is a PICU consultant in Glasgow and her and a colleague came up with a mnemonic which is a reminder of important points not to forget in a paediatric resuscitation. So let's just jump right in. So today we are going to touch on a topic we've not touched on before and that's paediatrics. Not my forte, I work in an adult, predominantly adult emergency department, so it's always one of those things that we get a little bit nervous about, and it's nice to get a little bit of a a refresh from someone who does it a little bit more regularly, and hopefully we can pick up a few wee tips about paediatric resuscitation. So I've got a very special guest today uh, called Dr. Christina Harry, and uh, Dr. Harry, if you don't mind uh, just introducing yourself and tell us what your background is. Well, um, I'm a paediatric intensive care consultant and I work here in Glasgow in the, in the local PICU. I also do retrieval medicine. Um, I am, as you can probably tell, from Australia, but I've done all my paediatric and intensive care training here in Scotland. And you also used to be a flatmate of mine, isn't that right? <laughs> Should we get that out there? In case the listeners are thinking, this sounds very informal. <laughs> this isn't one of Owen's usual uh, conversations. So we did actually, we, we flat shared for about four years, isn't that right? That's when correct. When we were in training. So look, it's you did a conference recently and there was a part of one of your talks that you gave that seemed to really hit a, you know, a note with everyone in the room. Um, and that was a little bit of a, a mnemonic that you and one of your colleagues had put together, just around some kind of things to remember when you're looking after a, a sick child, I guess. So that's what we're going to talk about today. It's called the APLS. Now, you might have heard that before, but this is a different APLS. So it's just something to remind yourself of things to think about in sick children. So do you mind just telling me a little bit about the background of that and where that came from? Yeah, so what we came up with is, I think, when when people who don't deal with paediatric medicine regularly think of children and sick children they get very stressed and they you know there's this discussion that children aren't little adults but in a way they are because the same things have to happen you know blood has to go around the body and air has to go in and out and we're just trying to demystify that a little bit and make people realize they're not quite as scary as you initially may think APLS or advanced paediatric life support goes through in a fairly didactic measure about managing the ABCs, Ds and Es of paediatric resuscitation. But what we thought was just to give it a little bit of a different spin and the things that we find in critical care that are quite important that may not be as obvious and certainly things that I have been caught out in my career because sometimes children do trick you a little bit. Brilliant. And we should stress this is not a different version of APLS. This is a complement to APLS. So you're going through your same principles, A, B, C, D, E, and then this is an additional little reminder of some of the important things to remember or do in the moment. So let's start with A. So what is A? So A, we would say, is ask about the heart rate. And in children, this is a really sensitive measure that gives you a window into their physiology because children respond to stress by increasing their heart rate. And this is particular in small children or infants because they have a very small stroke volume. So so the main mechanism that they increase their cardiac output is by putting up their heart rate. Unfortunately, as people know, heart rate is not particularly specific. And this this is also the case in children. So on one hand, you can have a screaming toddler having a strop with a high heart rate. On the other hand, you could have a meningococcal child in septicemic shock with a high heart rate. Those are obviously two fairly extreme examples, and you would hope that you could distinguish the difference. In reality, it's somewhere more in the middle. But my advice would be if you have a child whose temperature has come down, who is calm, 
you know, who is interacting appropriately with their environment, but they still have an inappropriately high heart rate that you can't put your finger on. I'd just be a little bit anxious about that child. The other thing to say with heart rates in children is it can give you a very nice guide to how your therapy is going. And certainly when a really sick child comes into Risa, say with with shock, and you start to give fluids and do the things that you do, you'll see the heart rate trend down very nicely. And that's always a very reassuring uh, guide to see that your therapy is going the right way. So what about low heart rates? My my basic understanding is that's not a very good thing. (laughs) Can you just just tell me a wee bit more about low heart rates and what, what that should make us think in the moment? I think in the absence of any drugs or alternative um, explanation. So for example, some children on sedation in PICU will have a lower heart rate perhaps. I think it makes me a little bit nervous because if someone's physiology is stressed, I would expect their heart rate to go up and respond to that stress. So if their heart rate is not as high as I would expect, or it just suddenly starts dropping, that's a real red flag for me that something isn't going well. And certainly whilst everyone gets anxious about the really high heart rate, the low heart rate can be just as dangerous. So what you're trying to figure out is, is the heart rate in context to what, what you're seeing in front of you? Is their physiology appropriate? And I take it if that's the case, then it's back to A, B, C, D, E. Try to figure out why that is. Is that right? Yes. I always go back to A, B, C, D, E because quite a lot of the initial things like airway and breathing can make a difference on the further things. You don't have to go back and look at it all in huge detail. But for example, if you're bradycardic, go back and check that you've got a patent airway and that you're actually oxygenating the child because correcting those two simple things might be the compromise to the child and might bring up their heart rate or make it more appropriate. So always go back. It's it's sort of, you know, just quickly recap of where you were. So I know it's very difficult in children because obviously their physiology changes as they grow older, but are there certain values we should be worried about? Is it is it discrete numbers or is it patterns to to the change or how how do you kind of use uh, heart rate when you're resuscitating? I think both are initially important and the initial number can be quite shocking. So if you tell me a child has a heart rate of 40, that will certainly get my attention. If you tell me a child has a heart rate of 240, that will get my attention. Often though, it's not quite as extreme as that. And what you're looking at is the trend. So you want to know what is happening over a period of time. So for example, a heart rate of 180 in a child who has been well and is getting worse is significant. But in a child whose heart rate started at 240, for example, and you have made some interventions, that's an improvement. So looking at the trend over time is hugely important, not just the single number. Okay, any other little things you'd like to say about heart rate? I think I personally have experience with this, not only in critical care, but I will never forget when I was a junior, I sent a six-month-old child who had gastroenteritis home. They looked very well and appeared to be responding well to therapy. And they came back in the next night very unwell and had a prolonged stay with us. And I was really devastated about this. When we looked through all the case and all the all the sort of numbers and the figures, the thing that the only thing that stood out was this child's heart rate was higher than you would expect. Not devastatingly high, but it sat sort of in the 160s to 170s throughout their their entire admission, even when they were afebrile and sleeping. And I think that really illustrated to me uh, to to keep an eye on those sorts of children. It can be it can be subtle, but it certainly now would make me think twice if I have a high heart rate that I can't explain. So you probably want to do this even in adults, but probably specifically even more so in children is 
have an explanation for that heart rate. Exactly. Uh, don't presume it to be nothing. Um, if you can't think of an explanation, then just be cautious and, and just make sure you're doing the right thing. Is that fair? I think that's a fair call. Okay, so let's move on to P. And I think you've got a couple of things in that right for P. So so let's let's do those individually, if that's okay. So the first one for P is possibly sepsis. And rather than think, is this sepsis? I always like to go the other way and think, why isn't this sepsis? Just because it is something that if intervened quickly child can do much better and because it's such an insidious kind of presentation it's one of those things that's easy to miss uh, and it sometimes doesn't present the way you would expect so I always like to keep it high on the list of differentials uh, in a really sick child so that I don't miss it. Okay so I'm in the middle of a resource I've got a sick child in front of me how do I satisfy myself so I've, I've thought it I thought why could this not be sepsis how would you satisfy yourself that it's not, or are you suggesting that if, if you can't satisfy yourself that it's not, then it would be the right thing to do to give antibiotics to a sick child in a resource room? Is that roughly what, what you were kind of implying? I think if I have a child who's really quite critically ill in a resource room, in my mind, assuming that the story fits and it's a child where, where that is a possibility, I would always err on the side of caution and give antibiotics because I just wouldn't want to miss it. This is particularly true when the children are really small because obviously the bigger children are, the more localising signs you can get. But the small child, it might be really subtle as in they've just been off their feeds for a day or so and then they've become critically unwell. So if in any doubt, I would always give antibiotics to a, a really sick child. I'm not suggesting you go and give it to everybody who is looking relatively well in a GP surgery or, or in an A&E department. But for these children that come in looking really quite unwell, I have a low threshold for giving antibiotics and thinking of it early. Okay, so sick child, I can't convince myself it's not sepsis, but I don't really have a definite source. It's okay just to kind of use your standard local guidelines, whatever the kind of broad spectrum antibiotic that could be keftriaxone or other ways that that's locally recommended. Is that fair? Absolutely. So that's what I'd be wanting to do. And at the same time, get the appropriate microbiology sent, assuming that you can get blood cultures from the child and other things that you need to send, get them off to the labs quickly, give your antibiotics, and then you can, at least you know that you have given a dose of antibiotics and it's not something that you might forget, which sometimes can happen. Okay, P part two. I, I, I fear for this one, Christina, because <laughs> I know what's coming. And so, this is probably the, the the singularly most complicated topic in the whole of medicine. Would that be fair to say? <laughs> so so the P the second part of the P is Proston. And I know most people are very frightened of the idea of a, a cardiac abnormality in a in a child, particularly a baby, where there's a sort of a duct dependent lesion. Everyone dreads that. We dread that as well. I'm not putting it in to scare people, but just to trigger the thought process that you want to consider that. Now, Proston refers to a very specific situation where you're talking about a, a sort of a new neonate whose physiology is still adapting. And those are the children where if they were to come in really unwell, you'd still assume the obvious sepsis being the sort of the main cause. But the other two causes that briefly come into mind are metabolic and cardiac. And my point would be that if you're treating for something and if the child isn't improving or looking as if you may expect to keep your mind open for other possibilities and one of them being a cardiac problem uh, in, a, in a new baby. 
And in those situations, the best thing to do is pick up the phone and speak to someone at your local sort of hospital or your, your nearest tertiary centre and get some advice because they do scare everybody. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to, to even simplify this further, this horrendously complicated, <laughs> which I've tried many, many times to get my head around and I think I'm going to give up. Um, but how would you keep it really, really simple for someone who doesn't do this regularly, who's three o'clock in the morning and, you know, this very, very sick newborn is brought into the room? What What's the basic principles, the basic steps that you would go through and how should we manage it? So this really sick neonate that comes in, Common things occur commonly. So first, I would presume sepsis and treat for sepsis. So fluid is required, you know, oxygen, antibiotics, the normal things that you would do. Now, if at any point you feel that they're not responding appropriately, and to be fair, these would probably be children that you'd be referring to tertiary services anyway. If they weren't responding or you found anything unusual, I'd think bigger. And what I mean by unusual is if they have an unusual or any abnormalities on their cardiac exam, including absent femoral pulses, um, if their saturations aren't as high on oxygen. If you have any of those things, I'd be concerned. In addition, if you can send off an ammonia or a lactate, that can kind of look at metabolic things as well. So if you take out sepsis, the other two things I would talk about being metabolic and cardiac, which are common at that age, those initial kind of screening tests they may not, but they may give you enough of a sort of an idea to which way you're going. And at that point, I'd be phoning a tertiary centre and saying, this is what I have. What do I do next? Do you think it would be appropriate to start Proston if you find some findings and they haven't improved? Or do you think it's better to discuss with a tertiary centre first? I think it's probably better to discuss just because they have more experience. And also starting Proston isn't a benign thing to do. If you start it at a really high rate, you can cause the baby to have apneas. And you want to make sure that you haven't missed anything. And usually a phone call like that, that's something that tertiary centres are used to getting phone calls about. And a quick five-minute phone call might save you a lot of hassle later on just to make sure that you're on the right track and that you make up the drug properly if you are going to start Proston because it's not something that adult units commonly use. Okay, so one of the things that I've kind of slightly struggled with and, I, and and thankfully I've never really had to deal with one of these patients um, so thankfully I've never been put in this position but I think if I was in this position I, and in the pressure of the moment I might start thinking but is fluids the right thing could this be a cardiac patient and is that a good you know so should we be cautious with fluids in, in these potential patients that have the potential to be cardiac I think in a shocked neonate who um presents to you immediately the most common thing is likely to be sepsis so I would treat with volume unless you have a specific history that a child has a, has a, a cardiac problem but even then children who have cardiac problems still need volume you just might want to be more cautious about the volume that you give but I wouldn't let that put you off giving volume to a sick neonate who comes in because the odds are it probably won't be cardiac and they probably need the volume but you can have it at the back of your mind and keep assessing them to make sure it's not having a detrimental exactly. effect. Exactly, and I think a key thing is, is if you're giving loads of volume and the child is getting worse, that is one of the points that make you think, this is not quite right, I perhaps need to think about other options here and what's going on. Okay, so moving on to L. What does L stand for? So L is learn to love your lactate. The reason I choose lactate is because it's something that you can get in most places. So you don't need to be in intensive care to get a lactate level. You can run it on a blood gas, even on a capillary sample. 
The challenge with children is that capillary samples can hemolyze, which makes your lactate artificially elevated, which causes its own anxiety. But if you have a genuinely high lactate in a child, you would ignore it at your own peril. Studies have shown that it's increased in tissue hypoxia and shocked states. The number is useful as well as the trend of the lactate. So I'm always quite twitched if I get a really high lactate and I watch it closely and I watch my treatment closely and see how it correlates. And I guess the other thing is don't be overly reassured if the lactate's normal, if you've other reason to be concerned. Is that fair? Absolutely. Lactate levels can take a bit of time to go up. So a normal lactate doesn't exclude pathology. Um, And also it may go up later and you may miss it. So whilst it is a bit reassuring when it's low, I wouldn't, you know, sort of calm down and have a cup of coffee if you have other concerns about the child. But a high lactate, you would always argue, is significant. It can be difficult to determine the cause of the high lactate, but you would hope if you are giving, you know, the right therapy that you will start to see it trend in the right direction and to see that continue. Would it be fair to say that it's very rare to have a high lactate in a child that's anything but significant? What I mean by that is obviously there are other reasons that lactate are elevated. And we commonly see in adults even lactate levels elevated in in alcoholics, say, for example. And that's probably a physiological thing. I don't know if that's magnesium or vitamin B or whatever, the the kind of pathological process is there. But it's not due to a a kind of an acute problem. Um, But I guess that probably doesn't happen in kids. So would you say a high lactate is likely to be significant and warrants, you know, definitely further investigation at all times? I would always say that a high lactate is significant. The most common thing you will see is a high lactate in a child that looks well, that's maybe in the A&E department that people get excited. That most common thing is it's a sampling error. But you do need to check it again because if it is accurate, you're missing an important sign. Quite often people will do capillary samples and it will be hemolyzed and you'll get an abnormally high lactate. Not huge, but enough to make you think. So in those situations, I recommend they use another sampling method and run it again. And quite often they come back as normal. But they would be the only situation where I would consider that. I think any genuinely high lactate in a child warrants further investigation. Okay, so I think we're on to the last one now. So S, what does that stand for? So it stands for syringe in the volume. And I know for the uh, adult A&E guys, the way we give volume probably makes you laugh. It's not in 500 mil bags. Um, We give it usually in 20 mil per kilo boluses. So in shocked children, early fluid resuscitation is essential. And that is generally how we would start it is 20 mils per kilo. And if you get to 60 mils per kilo and you still have circulatory insufficiency, you're looking at the point where you're thinking of adding in inotropes and getting sort of, you know, PICU advice and, and thinking about escalating it. Um, it is worth noting of your four H's and your four T's, hypervolemia is actually one of them. So by giving fluid, you can eliminate a cause for a cardiac arrest. In fact, if you think about, you know, the three important ones you can eliminate just by doing the normal things when a child comes in. So if you give them oxygen, fluid, and perhaps dextrose, that is three sort of reversible causes of cardiac arrest that can immediately give you some more time when a child comes in. And if memory serves me right, we obviously don't always give. There are times when we should be a little bit more cautious. What are those times? So there's probably three cases where I'd be really careful. Your first one is your cardiac disease. Now, when a child comes in, 
I'm talking about the child where you know they have a cardiac disease. I wouldn't be looking to make a diagnosis. But in these children, they will still need volume. However, I'd probably give it in smaller aliquots, say 10 mil per kilo boluses, and then stop and assess to make sure that they're not going into failure. Second one is DKAs. And so the reason that's important is the risk for cerebral edema is really high in children, particularly if their illness is severe and they're really young. So in these children, I would only give 10 mil per kilo boluses and I would stop at 30 mil per kilo completely. Even if they still look totally rubbish, that's probably because they're acidotic. And if you keep giving them volume, you're more likely to get them into trouble. So I'd stop at 30 mil per kilo and I would seek further advice. The last one is with trauma which was the same kind of reasoning for adults. And again, I would go more to a 10 mil per kilo bolus. And obviously in the case of trauma where you're losing blood, I'd try and replace like for like. So those are the three sort of obvious ones where you perhaps put the brakes on and think a little bit more carefully. Okay, so just say in the rare circumstance we've given the 60 mils per kilogram or the 30 mils in, in a DK patient, but you've kind of given what you feel to be about the max you can give, but they're still needing more blood pressure support. Well, what do you do? What's the next steps? I think your obvious one that you'd see in adults as well as children, let's say that the patient that comes in with sepsis and is very inflammatory and you're giving volume and they're soaking it up and they're still hypertensive. For me, once you've given three lots of 20 mil per kilo, you're sort of thinking that you're going down with some inotropy support and it's potentially likely that the child would need intubated. Having said that, the child may still need further volume because they still may be relatively hypovolemic. So in these situations when you are escalating your treatment, I would try and support the circulation as much as you can. And in this case, I would be adding in peripheral inotropes and doing that before you tube them. Because if you intubate them and they are still profoundly unstable, it's likely that they will arrest on you. So I would tend, most children, you, you, don't, you don't need to tube them straight off the bat. That You can support their airway with simple airway manoeuvres and some oxygen. I'd be trying to keep that going whilst I then started inotropes and doing other various things because if you're more hemodynamically stable when you give an anaesthetic, you're much more likely to have a happy anaesthetist at the other end as well. Christina, thank you very, very much. That's great. If you don't mind, I was going to ask you a few audience questions. So we, we put out a request and we've got a few, if you don't mind. So first one comes from a Colin Jeffrey, who is a paramedic and asks, should we be spending longer on-scene times at pre-hospital arrests as for adults? Or do we carry out full resource procedures in the ambulance en route to hospital, especially if there's long journeys to the next suitable hospital? That's a really difficult one to answer because there's so many variables. Um, and also you have to consider the safety of the team that are moving the child. And I don't want to suggest that they'd be doing you know, unsafe things in the back of an ambulance when they're driving at speed. I think the key thing is that any child that arrests, they've usually become very unwell to arrest. And they've not just developed an arrhythmia and dropped down. So usually by that point, it is, it is a challenge to get them back. What I would say is do the basic things, do them well. So secure, make sure you've got a secure airway. I don't necessarily mean intubation, but some kind of adjunct to make sure that you can bag valve um, mask uh, ventilate them. Make sure you've got air going in and out. Start CPR. If you're able to you get IV access for things like adrenaline, addressing your 4Hs and your 4Ts is appropriate. Do those things quickly. But there probably won't be a huge amount that you can do at scene, and I would suggest moving quickly. I would say, though, that it is a challenge to deal with these children and I don't think there's an answer that fits all. So next up is a question from Chris Lowry who asks, when relatives are present during paediatric resus, is there any tips about how best to look after them when you don't have the staff numbers available to devote someone to them full time? 
that is also a really challenging question. And I think any paediatric resuscitation is stressful for all of the healthcare professionals um, involved. If you do have someone, even if it's someone who is not particularly medical, just to be with the parents, that is advisable. But sometimes you may not have that. And parents are different how they want to be. There might be some parents who don't want to be in the room and there might be some that actually take a huge amount from seeing you do everything for their child, particularly if the outcome is bad. One of the things I would ask is do they want to be in the room or would they prefer to wait outside and see how they feel? And then I think at that point you have to try and do the best that someone does support them and explain. But I realise that's really challenging when you've got everybody involved in the resus and they're trying to get an output back or, or you know, trying to deal with a, a sick child. I think it's more challenging when the child has arrested because those situations are quite frenetic. Um, and I think it has to be judged by the team that's in the room and how they feel. For example, I know some people who aren't as comfortable dealing with children who find having parents in really intimidating, whereas maybe people who are a bit more used to it don't get quite as upset. But I would say that the team need to be comfortable. And particularly if you're doing something like you're intubating a child or doing something invasive and you feel that having the parents there stresses you out, don't be afraid to say that to them and maybe just ask them to give you a minute so you can do what you need to do and you can be focused on the job rather than actually um, worrying about what the parents think. I guess the priority is the child and if the parents being there is potentially detrimental to that care then they probably shouldn't be in the room, is that fair? I think the priority is the child. Um, it is lovely if you have extra people and you can devote someone to being with the parents and in particular in really difficult situations to support the parents when something difficult is happening. But you need to make sure that you can look after the child in a way that you feel comfortable doing. Okay, I think we've officially come to the end, but I always like to finish with, with a question I ask all my guests, if that's okay. So if you could go back in a time machine and you could meet your junior self just leaving medical school, what have you gained in your experience? What, what have you learned that you think would be of value to someone starting their career? Uh, I think the most important thing, particularly in light of paediatrics, is being kind to yourself. I think it's very easy early on to assume when things don't go well or perhaps you've not got the experience that the entire blame is on you and as you go through you realise that it's a learning process also that things often have multi multifactorial reasons why some things don't work um, and that it is not personal and it is not about you and certainly I used to beat myself up about that a lot and now I like to look at things in a slightly bigger context and be a little more objective and not uh, go home and worry about it for days as I used to as a junior Christina Harry thank you very very much for your time I hope you found this uh, enjoyable it's been delightful I should say although we won't make it publicly fully aware that you and I did a, a podcast together about 10 years ago probably must have been at the infancy of podcasting I think I mean there really wasn't the same amount of podcasting around as, as when we were doing and I was I had ambitions in music and we were doing musical podcasts, but when we were sharing a flat together, we used to um, jump on the mics and do some podcasting. So I might even see if I can find one of those. <laughs> I think they would be very different content. Um, so this was probably a bit more formal, but thank you very, very much for your time. It's thanks, been absolutely Owen. brilliant. Thank you. So many, many thanks to Christina for sharing that little mnemonic with us. I think it's an important uh, reminder of things to think about in the moment. So just uh, take home points, I think, is just to summarise that little mnemonic. So A is ask about the heart rate. 
Infants have a small stroke volume, so the main mechanism to increase their cardiac output is by raising their heart rate. So if you have a child who you can't explain a high heart rate, just be cautious. P, there are two components. The first is possibly sepsis, or ask yourself why this isn't sepsis. It can be insidious in presentation, can be easy to miss, so do think about it. And if you have a sick child and you can't exclude sepsis, it's possibly best to treat it as such. The second component is prostin. So if you're treating a sick child and they're not improving or looking like you would expect, then you should think of some other uh, possible causes such as cardiac or metabolic in, in neonates. If you think this is possibly a cardiac case, you're probably best to discuss it with a tertiary centre or specialist, either in intensive care or cardiology, uh, just to get advice on starting prostin because it's not a benign drug it can lead to apnea and if you're not doing it regularly you will need some advice on how to make it up and how to start it number three is learn to love your lactate uh, we're probably all very familiar with lactates now uh, but never ignore it in a, in a child um, they can sometimes be artificially elevated particularly capillary samples can hemolyze so if you have a high level but the child looks really well it may be prudent to retest it and number four is syringe in the volume. Um, so typically boluses are 20 mils per kilogram up to about 60 mil per kilogram, but you would half that in a few certain cases, and those are known cardiac disease, DKA, and in trauma. And after these maximum amounts have been reached, uh, if there's any further instability, you need some specialist help. So many, many thanks again to Christina, and many, many thanks to you for listening. Please remember to visit our website, uh, stmungos-ed.com, where you can find our show notes for this episode, as well as lots of other additional educational resources. Please give us a good rating on iTunes. Uh, and until next time, take care. Music